This is Joe Polizzi, co-author of Killing Marketing, How Innovative Businesses Are Turning Marketing Cost Into Profit, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners. So please introduce yourself. Now, let's talk about you. Yes, you. Whether you realize it or not, by listening to the Marketing Book Podcast, it says something about you. It says you're probably a lifelong learner, always searching for new ideas in order to be more successful. So I'd like to tell you about another podcast that you might really enjoy. The B2B Growth Show is a daily podcast dedicated to helping business-to-business marketers achieve explosive growth. It's hosted by my friends James Carberry and Johnny Green and includes interviews with marketing practitioners, experts, and over 25 authors who have also been on the Marketing Book Podcast. And while it's a daily show, each episode of the B2B Growth Show is only 12 to 15 minutes, except, of course, for when I was a guest on the show and couldn't stop talking about all the great books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. So just hop onto your podcast player and search for B2B Growth Show. And you can follow the B2B Growth Show on Twitter at B2B Growth Show. So if you're a business-to-business executive and you like the Marketing Book Podcast and you're not already a listener to the B2B Growth Show, give it a listen. Now on to today's interview. Today, we welcome Joe Polizzi back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book he has co-authored with Robert Rose, Killing Marketing, How Innovative Businesses Are Turning Marketing Cost Into Profit. Joe Polizzi is the founder of Content Marketing Institute, a UBM company, the leading education and training organization for content marketing, which includes the largest in-person content marketing event in the world, Content Marketing World. Joe's the author of four other books. His fourth book, Content Inc., has been a top direct marketing bestseller since September of 2015. His third book, Epic Content Marketing, was named by Fortune Magazine as one of five must-read business books of 2013. And the other two books he has co-authored are Get Content, Get Customers, and Managing Content Marketing. And Joe not only writes for one of the most influential content marketing blogs in the world for Content Marketing Institute, which every marketing book podcast listener should be reading, he writes a column for entrepreneur.com and is a LinkedIn influencer. And you can also hear Joe on his podcasts, This Old Marketing and Content Inc., And if you ever meet him in person, he will be wearing orange. And interesting fact, he is a diehard Cleveland sports fan. Joe, congratulations on killing marketing and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Mr. Burdett, I am honored that you would have me back on. So that means that the first time I was on, it wasn't horrible. I mean, it was, it could have been satisfactory, but it wasn't horrible. So I'm glad I made the cut. And then also while you were reading all that, that probably put people to sleep. I just realized that content is not in the title of this next book. And that's the first time I've not had content, the word in the title of the book. And I don't know what that means. That is true. And I never really realized it until right now. You know, when you're the host of the marketing book podcast, you're supposed to catch these things. And I did not catch that. So that is a little disturbed. I'm a little, well, I'm disturbed you didn't catch it, first of all. And I'm also disturbed that it's it's a foreboding thing that, because the, the last two books have done fairly well, at least for, for nonfiction business books, but I'm, I'm scared now. 
I'm really, I'm, I think I should stick it in there somewhere. Well, having or, read the book, <laughs> I think it would be a bad idea <laughs> to actually have that word. But let me just mention one thing, Joe Polizzi. By being on the Marketing Book Podcast this time, you have joined a very, very exclusive club, which is the Marketing Book Podcast Three-Timers Club. So that it would be me, Richard Branson, and Barack Obama. Is um, that the so is that the three? No, they're still trying to work up towards oh, that. Oh, yeah. I am I'm really honored then if I'm above, the, above yeah. those guys. No, it truly is fantastic. And I don't use the word fantastic just because you guys use that word a lot in your own podcast. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> but it's you and Mark Schaefer. Good. And I'm as as we record this, I have not yet interviewed David Merriman Scott about the sixth. 10th anniversary edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR, but he's going to be joining the, the Three Timers Club. And if all goes well, he'll actually have been inducted before you. So I, I, I truly is rarefied air. And it also represents p- three people that have written about 20 books. Well, it's, it, it shows a couple things. First of all, that we've written more than one book because you know, obviously that has to be a prerequisite. And the other thing is we have a lot of spare time to talk to you. So this is. <laughs> and for that, I'm grateful. It is, it, it works out really well. Yeah. I can't believe it is. A, if it's the 10th anniversary of the new rules of PR and marketing, is it marketing and PR? Marketing, marketing and, PR. and PR. Yeah. I can't. I mean, obviously that was one of the key books that got everything going with the entire, my entire industry, our, you know, content marketing. But just marketing in general, and I now I feel really old. So, <laughs> yeah, it's one of the two books that had the greatest impact on my working career. That and Ogilvy on advertising when I went into advertising on Madison Avenue back in the in the nineteen eighties. Can, can I tell you a little side story that nobody knows about David Merriman Scott? Please. So, in content marketing two thousand eleven. It was supposed to be September 2011. It was going to be our first event. Never happened before. I'm Joe Polizzi, nobody. Nobody knows who I am. I'm just trying to work my way through and launch, you know, basically announce that we're going to do this conference. And I talked to, it must have been in December of 2010. I, I got a hold of David Merriman Scott and I asked him, uh, I said, David, I don't have a lot of budget. I said, I really want you to speak. It's super important that, that you're there to make this thing take off. And he really worked with me and made sure he was there. And he didn't have to do that because I was, I mean, he didn't know me from Adam at the time and we really worked it out. Of course, got him. He's a rock and roll crazy guy about everything. Rock and roll got him into the rock and roll hall of fame. He was super happy, worked all that out. But I just want to send out my, you know, positive thoughts there for, for David, because he was a good guy when he didn't have to be. And we've got a lot of that. You know, you talk about Mark Schaefer, Robert Rose, Ann Hanley, Andy Crestedy. We've got some amazing people in this oh, industry. Yeah. And they're just super nice, yourself included. I mean, I, I mean, I've been ta- I would talk to you well before we met. I think we met at Inbound, but just a lot of good people in this industry helping move us forward. And I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, very, very generous. And also, just, you know, don't think that this is just a, a, an honorary thing. When you join the Three Timers Club, the benefits include VIP tickets to Content Marketing World 2018. <laughs> and you're going to get Cleveland Browns season tickets. Oh, my God. I, do you know? I have to pay people to use those tickets. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Last year, so everybody goes to the home opener. I'm a, yeah, I've been a Cleveland Brown season ticket holder for a long time. Everybody goes to the season opener because it's we're we're tied for first place at that time. Uh-huh. So we're so really excited. Draft day. We're really excited. Draft day is our Super Bowl, and then we're very excited. We get into, and then once we lose the first game by 40 points, nobody wants to use the tickets, including me, by the way. So, uh, usually, 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 well, I usually have to give them out and like slide a, like a 20 or even a hundred dollars. I know Robert Rose doesn't want them because he's a Cowboys fan. He'll only take them if the Cowboys are playing. Yeah. So that's it. I have to call people from the opponent's city to have them come in (laughs) to use the tickets. And like when you go to the games now, hopefully they'll be better this year. But if you go to a Pittsburgh Steelers, Cleveland Browns game at Cleveland Browns stadium, it's a Pittsburgh Steelers home game. Oh. Same for the same when Dallas and Cleveland played and Robert and I were there together. It was ridiculous. So it was all Cowboys fans. So anyways, but this year, but this year is the year. Obviously, we got we got Cavs good vibes going on still. Cleveland Indians are in first place. Browns, 
something's going to happen. Well, you know, my college football team, their last winning season was the fall of 1981. So over the years, I've kind of grown a, a lot of empathy for the Cleveland Browns, and, and they've had winning seasons long since, you know, since then many times. So, you know, I, I, feel, I feel for them, and I, I find myself pulling for the Browns just because of my own, you know, personal uh, torment. Well, I mean, it's it's been since 1964, so at some point you've got to think uh, in the next 50 yes, years. Yes, it could it could it could happen. Right, right. I mean, it happened. The Cavs won a championship, first time championship in 52 years, so that happened. So the curse is gone. The curse of Rocky Calavito is gone. We're ready to go. Browns step up. Yeah, Make and you can happen. you can look into the patience of Chicago Cubs fans. That's right, as it relates to patience. Yeah, who so. beat who who beat my Cleveland Indians, who hadn't won a championship since '48. So now we're the you're next. <laughs> we're the longest running team without a championship. Well, all right. So there you go. So Joe, on to the book. Let me just read a quick excerpt, and and we'll go from there. This is from towards the beginning. Normally, when creating the work product, such as a book, we start with the answer to a question. For example, in my 2013 book, Epic Content Marketing, I talk about how marketers can build loyal and profitable relationships with customers by delivering consistently valuable content in order to drive sales. In 2015, Robert, with Carla Johnson, wrote the book Experiences, The Seventh Era of Marketing, which outlines an approach on how content-driven experiences can be created, managed, scaled, promoted, and measured in today's business environment. This book, however does not start with an answer. It begins with questions. Questions that Robert and I are desperate to find the answers to. What if what we've been taught or experienced in marketing doesn't show us the full picture? What if we've limited our view of marketing to one area, what we know, and that is not allowing us to see the full potential of what can be accomplished, what we do not know yet? And what if placing marketing solely in the marketing department is killing the approach of marketing as a strategic business process? In other words, what if everything we know to be true about marketing is actually what's holding back our business? Joe Polizzi, why did you write this book? I'm sorry. I'm tearing up while I'm listening to you spell back my words. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Well, this um, book got me kind of fired up, good sir. Yeah, so. I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you why because I mean you you love marketing like I love marketing as the profession that it is and Robert and I have been to into way too many companies that are are frankly doing it wrong. They're doing marketing the same way they've done it for the past 50 years. In some cases, it has been 50 years, some of these big enterprises we're going into, and they haven't realized or they haven't adapted and changed to the fact that the the, the control over the buyer's journey is with the consumer now 100%, and they're still renting space and advertising and still have their departments that are set up exactly. That's what kills me, Douglas, is that if you go into an organization, the corporate communications department and marketing and advertising and PR and their agency of record, it's the same that it was 20 years ago. And we've had all these changes that have happened where we actually have the opportunity to, to grow and build a direct com- direct communications with our customers, build an audience. They will allow us in and we can build an asset in an audience. And most of us don't do that. And we're creating content running amok and we're spending all this time and wasting all this time on things that we shouldn't be. So the reason why, now back to the reason why we wrote this book is we're tired of it. And sort of killing marketing was our plea to anybody involved in marketing, PR, and and communications that you've got to pretty much blow up the marketing department as you know it. As you know it, not eliminate it. Not not eliminate it. We're not... I don't want yes. the, the listeners to be driving off the road on their way to work at this point. And that's why, well, you know, killing marketing, we're having fun on the little O'Reilly spin a little bit with killing everything <laughs> right. that he So we had a little bit of fun with that. But the idea is, is that if you want to be a growth company, you have to blow up your current marketing structure into something that we think could be its own profit center. So we think that marketing can, can be the leader in the business model of the new company. And there's 10, and that's what we talk about in the book, there's 10 different ways to drive revenue. And most companies are looking at one or two of those ways. And they're definitely not looking at marketing as a profit center. And we believe the future 
of most enterprises as well as small companies. And I talk, you know, I've talked about that in Content Inc. Is that there's an opportunity there to actually generate direct revenues from your marketing and have that, you know, actually grow the valuation of the company and not be a cost center. Yes, and so. very important to say this is not just for big, big brands. And in the book, you talk about some big ones and some small ones, and, and it's also in Content Inc. as well. So let me ask you, what, or could you trace for the listener, just trace the, uh, briefly the development of the the rebirth of content marketing as it related to the declining cost of production and distribution? I, I just loved the way you explained, it was almost like you were explaining the, the constellation, <laughs> how certain planets rotate around others and how that's changed. Well, I mean, so there's a there's a really amazing chart that when I do my speaking events, and you've seen this, Jeff Roars gave me, and it talks about how before 1990, there were only eight ways that your customers could get information. You know, they could get through radio and through television advertising and through fax marketing and email, and, and there's eight, so there's eight of those ways. And now today, there's hundreds, if not thousands of ways that consumers could get information. So in 1990, uh, media companies who dominated the airwaves in any one of those channels or brands with big advertising budgets could dominate. And that's why advertising worked really, really well at the oh, time. Beautifully, yeah. Beautifully, yeah. Like if you're if you're in the 70s and 80s, you're all about advertising, right? And then now since then, you know, starting in about, you know, the mid-90s, we saw all these the diversification of different channels and consumers, basically the smartphone, you know, being a 24 seven device where your customers could get anything that they wanted to. And that means they could ignore us at will. They didn't have to pay attention to our advertisement and they don't have to pay attention to your content that you think is so good either. So what that means is that we have to think differently about, you know, we have access to that audience through the smartphone, through, through the internet, through all the other things that we have, but we're, we're that, that opportunity is not going to be there forever because our competition or somebody else is going to come in and they're going to create that direct communication with them by creating amazing experiences through content. And you're going to be left at the sidelines spending a lot of money on advertising and PR and at a really inefficient basis. Trying to use an audience at someone else's belt rather than yourself. Well, that's what I'm saying. So let's just say, I think you and I have talked about this before. Let's just say that you had to start from scratch. Would you would you actually spend the majority of your money, which most companies do, on advertising and disruption and, and leveraging somebody else's channels? Or would you start creating your own? Everybody that I've talked to said, oh, we would absolutely create our own. We want our own connections. We want to own that audience. We want direct communications with our audience. And if, if we can build a loyal audience that knows, likes, and trusts us, then we will see positive behavior changes. Nobody disagrees with that. They just don't do it. <laughs> I, I, and a matter of fact, I think it was uh, when we talked about Content Inc. And you described a situation where you were at some sort of startup panel, and all they were all talking about how to sort of do it the old way to get attention and preference and awareness of their products. And I think you looked at everyone else in the panel and said, "I, I think you've all got this wrong." <laughs> It's a, something like that, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. There was like a VC panel. Yes, uh, that's they were right. talking about how to build a business and how to get attention, and they're saying, "Oh, you got to, you, you know, you could use Facebook advertising and, and SEO and, and or SEM and all this other stuff." And I'm like, "Are you guys crazy?" It's like if you focus on being the informational provider for your customer base or your audience, or depending on how you break up your audience, isn't that the best way to do it? And then once they see you as the trusted advisor, then you can sell whatever you want to them. So killing marketing is that, but on a grander basis that you could actually try to scale that. Yes. And it's easier for smaller companies. By the way, if you're a smaller company, to your point, listening to this, much easier for you. You don't have the red tape. You don't have the politics. I just talked with a big enterprise yesterday about this. They're having all kinds of problems because there are people that have been in marketing for 20 years, 30 years. They didn't learn any of this in university. By the way, they're not still not learning any of this in university. <laughs> That's right. They're still turning out uh, Don Drapers. <laughs> It's, I can't believe that when I go in and I'll look, so sometimes I'm asked to go into a, a university and do a, a guest talk, and I say, well, can I sort of see your textbooks and see your structure? It's like, the, that's the same thing that I was taught in 1991. I'm like, come on. this And, and by the way, the same thing that somebody else was taught in 71. Yeah. I, I see. That's what I don't understand. It's like everything has changed around us, and yet, yet we feel that this is the best way to communicate. And- 
I don't know. I mean, you you read all these books. I'm just like, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, what? when are we going to see this thing change? Here's what keeps me going. A bit morbid, but bloodletting was done for thousands of years. <laughs> and they just kept doing it. Well, that's that's just the way everybody's done it. I, it. You know, seems to work. So at some point, somebody finally woke up and said, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea. <laughs> so I, you know, I looked at that for inspiration because at some point more folks are going to catch on. But quickly tell a story about a company. Maybe tell the story about what Aero Electronics has done. This is such a good example, and it could also be done on a small scale too. I was not as aware of what they had done, and they did it very quickly. Oh, and just so everyone knows, the Aero Electronics case study is my new favorite case study. It used to be John Deere. And I still love John Deere. John Deere's yeah. Thoreau Magazine started in 1895, largest media company in the farming industry, 2 million subscribers, all that. Love it. But Aero Electronics is, is, an, is basically the killing marketing model in action with a little bit different twist around acquisition. So basically, if you go back three years ago, Aero Electronics saw the deterioration of media around them. So they saw the media properties. And by the way, Aero Electronics is sort of the Amazon.com of selling electronical components to engineers. So I think in the book you said they're like 119 on the Fortune 500. That's right. Two, $24 billion company last year. So big, big company. So, you know, even you could be small company, big company, but they're a big company. And they did some research or picked up some research that actually UBM did in 2014 that said electronic engineers, who's their audience, get basically all their information on how to learn and educate themselves from media, from events, from webinars, from uh, print magazines, from media websites, whatever. And then they looked at the health of media. And what they realized is that the media companies that these electronics engineers were getting information from were dying because they their business models weren't evolving. They were still focused more on selling advertising, selling advertising not working as well as it used to. That, so these that one revenue stream... <laughs> that one revenue stream, yeah. basically two for the most part. Most media companies are advertising and subscription. But in your in this case, you're right. It was mostly advertising. They were dying. And so they looked out and said, oh, my God, our customers who are being educated by these media companies may, be, may not be educated by them for much longer because they're going to go out of business. What do we do? And they said, we need to come in and save this and because we, we need to save our own business model. They went out, they went to actually UBM, our parent company, and they went to Hearst, and they bought 51 media properties. Yeah, that's, that's pretty decisive action. It's, wouldn't you think so? <laughs> I would say they were all in. They were all in. And basically, they purchased every major media company in their industry. 51, they are now the largest media company. They have more audience than anyone else. So if you say, who's the largest media company in the electronics engineer, um, industry? It would be Aero Electronics. Aero Electronics set up a subcorp called Aspen Core. And Aspen Core has a little church and state line, just like most media companies would with their advertisers, but they have that in their organization. They're selling, they, excuse me, they're selling advertising to their competitors. They are. Don't you love that? They actually create content. Yeah. They actually create content. They create custom content for some of their competitors. So what they've done is they've invested. They've they've kept these really good journalists. They've hired more people, and the fifty one properties within Aspen Core runs at a fairly significant profit. And ever since they've been investing more into it and diversifying their revenue lines, they're even more profitable. So what this has done is not only created marketing as a profit center, which we talk about in the book, and they they didn't build their way there. They bought their way there, which is one way to do it. You could do either. Or you can do both combined. They, if you, you know, Air Electronics is a public company and they're traded on the New York Stock Exchange, I believe. And this has actually added to the valuation of the organization. So I talked in the side conversation, I talked with two of the largest 10 companies in the world recently at our last Intelligent Content Conference, and I sat them down, and they were talking about what some of these companies do with cash, because a lot of these big companies have a lot of cash on the sidelines, and they don't know what to do with it yet. And we talked about, well, what if you went and 
bought some of these media companies that uh, actually threw off cash and were profitable, wouldn't that be a really good way to use that cash instead of it just sitting there doing nothing and you could add to the value of the organization? And like their heads fell off when I told them that. And I said, it's not that big of a deal. Media companies do this all the time. But as a marketing person, what if you did that? What And you, it's a great marketing entity. But let alone you could sell it to the chief financial officer by just selling a greater valuation and a better stock price or whatever the case is. So anyways, I'm rambling, They'll but I love that, though, I love the Aero Electronics example. Absolutely love it. It just blew me away. I was not as familiar with it, but very interesting. And all, now, just briefly, if you could talk about, there's other ways they're they're making money, or you talk about Johnson & Johnson or some of these other places where they're, they're actually selling information about their their audience and they're selling products and you know I, by by law I'm required to mention Red Bull yeah got it yeah I mean like talk about some of the other ways that this this very different approach to marketing is is generating revenue and not just talking about their company's products so yeah you mentioned Johnson and Johnson they have babycenter.com which is one of the leading websites for expecting mothers and and mothers with young children. And I think they reach something like eight in 10 mothers in the United States. This is, and it's a, they run it as a separate entity. They sell advertising and sponsorship off of it. They sell data. They sell, they have more data on what they know exactly what their customers call things and not. They've launched new products off of this. It's it, just it also looks like they're getting a lot of great R and D based on the subscribe, you know, like looking at the analytics, realizing, oh, this topic is of greater interest than we realized. And starting to give them more insights than they may have gotten in the past just from doing focus oh, groups. I, I love, I mean, that's a great example of craft recipes. So craft recipes, what they've done with that, so they have so many recipes on their site. And what they find out is when they publish a recipe, they see, oh, this recipe is really taking off. Oh, uh, and then and then they use, and they use that information back and goes into R&D and product development. And they say, oh, something like, oh, man, uh, this is so three, four years ago. You know, we should we should have red velvet Oreos or whatever the case is, because red velvet is really taken off. So they know beforehand because these things are hot and they're getting this data, and then they can actually launch new products off the back of the content. So these are the types of things. So if you think about, all right, how do you need to think about marketing as a profit center or revenue lines? This is what we're talking about, revenue lines that can ultimately be profitable. There are five and five. There's there's five direct ways to do it and five indirect ways. So if we think about the five direct ways, that's just like a media company, right? I'm going to be sell advertising and sponsorships, or I'm going to sell subscriptions, or I'm going to sell paid content like premium eBooks or content pa packages, or you could have your content donated. Uh, you know, those are the types of direct ones, just like, or events like we do for content marketing world, you know, those types of things. So there's your five direct, and then you have your indirect ones and your indirect ones are like content marketing, like how do I sell? more products to my current customers through this does content do that so building an audience do that how about more services like i love uh we talk about this in the book matthew patrick who's matt pack on youtube he has about eight million subscribers and he he has a is as a youtube series called game theory which basically talks about gaming and and some of the conspiracy theories behind that he's got a huge audience of eight million people and he's become maybe the leading consultant up on youtube to fortune 2,500 brands because he's learned YouTube in and out. So he not only leverages his platform through selling advertising and subscriptions and merchandising and all those things, but he actually sells consultant services to some of the largest companies, including YouTube itself, <laughs> because he's created that audience. Yeah. So, so you could do products and services and you can increase yield and you could do cross sales and all those things. So what we're so not to get it all into the weeds, but the idea is we're mashing up traditional content marketing outcomes and goals, creating more yield, more products and services sold, creating better customers in some way, cross sales, up sales, whatever. So that was traditionally content marketing. And now we're mashing that up with you can also generate direct revenues like media companies do. And that's what we're seeing. And that's what we're going to see. So you and I, we can say that. New York Times is different than Cisco Systems all day long, but in five years, that model is going to be the same. They're going to be generating the same types of revenues. They're just going to be perceived differently, but they're going to have a marketing as a profit center. And we're just going to look at, oh, that's a media company and that's Cisco Systems, but it's going to be the same exact thing and nobody really sees this coming, but that's what it's going to be. All right, listeners, mark his word. 
<laughs> you you heard it here first. Prediction right here. That's I, right. I, Although I'll they, stake anything on it. I'll stake my Browns tickets. Yeah. <laughs> on the fact that that is absolutely, and we're already seeing it happen. You yes. mentioned oh, Red absolutely. Bull Media House. Johnson and Johnson and Kraft, Pepsi and Mondelez both have last year launched these initiatives and they actually specifically say we want marketing to be a profit center. There's no reason why if they don't dedicate themselves to it, commit to it culturally, that they can make this thing happen. I had a big meeting yesterday to talk about it with a big enterprise. They're, everyone's looking into this. It's hard to do because it's change. And you know that's the oh, biggest thing. We've got to change. Terrifying, yeah. So just to bring it back to Arrow and all these other companies, they were losing their rented audience, so they decided we've just got to build it ourselves. Yeah, become become the media, and stop creating. I mean, so basically, what's happening? Not that I'm. I mean, I'm happy that content marketing has taken off. It's worked pretty well for me personally, for my family, and I think the industry is pretty darn strong. But it's only one side of the equation now. Right. I think we've got to take that to the where content marketing actually becomes a business model. And that's what killing marketing is, where this is the future of what marketing is going to look like. It's infusing traditional marketing, what we know as marketing, and infusing it with a media model. And everything revolves around a direct relationship with different kinds of audiences, where what you're going to see is instead of... Apple or Microsoft or whoever just saying, okay, we're going to advertise and here's how we're going to advertise. I'm going to buy Facebook stuff and we're going to create these nice communities and try to tweet and all this stuff. You're going to say you're going to have those companies that are going to have 10, 20, 50, 100, 1,000 different media products or media brands out there. Some are going to be branded. Some are going to be uh, content brands that are not going to be branded with the company. And that's how it's going to be. And they're going to monetize it 10 different ways. And we're, ha- and, we're, and we're getting there, and I think we'll really see that accelerate in the next couple of years. And in five years, you and I are going to have this conversation. and are going to say, look, it's happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, this is what, you know, uh, if you're Joe Polizzi or Robert Rose, uh, every day you must feel like that scene from Zoolander where he says, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> 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 Trying to explain this, and you, even in the book. And that's why I want to add it to a couple things. But just for uh, a few things that people could just understand on their way to work today, can you explain – why it's so very challenging for a marketing professional to leverage content with a business that revolves around their products rather yep. than their customers. There's a couple of things that happen. First of all, when we're we're so we're still so campaign oriented, right? If you if you look at most marketing budgets, it's around campaigns, it's around product launches. So what happens is, is that then the content we create is infused into that campaign in a short period of time around some action around a product. And what ultimately happens, especially when you get sales and product becomes more and more product oriented, which means it's not value. It's basically it's coming from the company's perspective. It's brand content and not audience centered content, which is generally media type content. So what happens is it it's terrible. Nobody wants to engage in it. It doesn't accomplish anything. It goes unread or unengaged in. And then somebody comes back to you say, hey, this content marketing thing didn't work when you're basically wasting everyone's time talking about your product and service that nobody cares about. Because to, for the beginning part of this part of this conversation, they don't have to pay attention to you. They can get their information anywhere. If you're not going to deliver quality information to them, they're going to go somewhere else and they're going to buy the product that you offer from somebody else because that person, that company's giving them the, the information they need. So that that's where that's where we're at. And if you're not consistently driving amazing, valuable content experiences to your particular audience, you are not, you are completely ignored. You you won't even you won't have a subscriber. They're not going to read your emails. They're not going to care about your content. That's why most of the content that's created in an organization goes unread at all, because nobody cares. You're just wasting your time. I'll tell a quick story. We worked with a really really large one of the largest companies in the world, and they found out that 98 percent of the PDFs that they created for their customers never had one view. Ouch. These, there's a thousands of PDFs that they created that that they thought were helpful, which Graveland. Uh, the graveyard. <laughs> graveyard this is terrible yeah it's terrible nobody i mean talk about a waste of time somebody actually had to create that just think of the the cost 
behind that. So what we have to think about is, oh, we have to focus everything we can on the needs and wants of the audience. And we have to focus on an area that we actually have an opportunity to break through all the other content clutter out there and really tell a different story and really deliver value. And currently you have short-term focus campaign and you have product-oriented content so that none of that's working. And you need audience-centered content, which is done ongoing just like a media company would delivered on a regular basis. So most companies are doing the first, the former, and they need to do consistent content creation over a long period of time, delivering value, creating an audience. And then over time, you see a profitable relationship with that customer. Well, is that also, or, or how is that related to why so much content gets created without a plan? It's still just so amazing that the majority of content created no plan. I uh, ask myself that question every day <laughs> when I look at the data that the majority of companies have no content marketing strategy yet are creating lots of content. I don't understand why they do it. I guess it's probably because it is so very easy to create content, not good content. Yeah. It's really easy to create content. It's basically free. You know, you're, you've got a blog, you're going to create an ebook, you're going to do an e-newsletter. All oh, that's basically free. You don't have to pay to insert no it. Pocket, yeah. There's no out of pocket. So they're just like, hey, because we can, we should. And unfortunately, that's not true. You need to really figure out, oh, who's our target audience? What are their needs? How do we, what do we have the authority to create content around? What do we ultimately want to see? What are the metrics and behaviors around that? And then you get down to, okay, what products can we possibly sell, which is way down the line? How do we build an audience? Most companies aren't even thinking about building an audience. They're thinking about how do I get more social shares? How do I get more web traffic? And then maybe they're talking about conversions, but they're not talking about building their email subscriber databases, which is super important right now. Yes. And so they're focused on the wrong thing. So basically all that uh, that I'm so very worried about is they're not thinking like publishers. They're not actually becoming media executives and that's why if you're going to hire for this, for, for like say in an enterprise or a medium-sized company, you should be looking not at marketing professionals. You should probably be looking at publishing professionals that understand the publishing model. Mm -hmm. It's just a much easier way to go because marketers are like, they're still very campaign. Say, oh, what product do we have to sell? What do we have to do? You're going to lay down. They're going to be a service group for sales. I'll get you all these PDFs and whatever you need. And really what they need to focus on is, well, how, how do we become the leading destination around this topic and build an audience that and have this amazing business model behind it? And nobody's doing that. It's crazy pills because if they would just answer the questions that you just posed, they would be in much better shape. But it's very interesting the way you all did the book because you you indicated who was writing each chapter. And I I don't want to hurt your feelings, Joe, but I've got to say, you know, I love the book, but chapter 10 by your co-author, Robert Rose, was, I just, I was, a, I thought it was tremendous. And part of the reason is because, well, he's a great, great writer, but also, as are you, but he talked about the pushbacks. And I read these pushbacks and they're Pushbacks I hear at the small and medium-sized business level, and it seems like it's almost bigger at the bigger company. And I wanted to just ask you uh, to respond to uh, uh, what some of the biggest pushbacks are. And one of them is, what do you all say when there is when somebody says, but there's too much media already. How, how do we stand out in our industry? Yeah. It's already been said. What, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, Robert is a better writer than I am. Uh, he, he's, he's just smarter. I've taken all of his really good ideas and I marketed them better. I'm a better marketer than him. That's why I'm more popular. He's much smarter than I am. Just you can, and you could tell him I said that, by the way, <laughs> he knows it's true. I steal all his good ideas and then I, I sell them as my own and it's worked really well for me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea about there being too much media is laughable. There's always been since the, since the dawn of the printing press, there's always been too much content. Be, I, I think it's so funny to say, oh, there's so much content out there. There's only enough content that people want to engage in at that particular time. Yes. It's, not like the, it's not like they're going to see the two million videos in the last minute that were uploaded to YouTube. They don't right. care about any of that. So the response is, what's the alternative? You're just going to stay inside because it's raining all day? Well, that's the good point is, is that, first of all, it's a false premise. The second thing is, what are you going to – so you're going to advertise more? That's working really well. What are you going to do? You got to build your, you're going to build fans on Facebook. 
on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and they're taking away all your rights. And now all your Facebook fans, they don't see any of your updates anymore because Facebook has taken all that away. You're going to do that? Like what, what, what is your option to do? I don't know of another option besides building an audience. And the good thing is, is that we, it's cheaper. It's, it's more efficient to do that than ever before to actually build an audience. Because when I started in publishing 20 years ago, you had to spend quite a bit of money in circulation development to keep somebody as part of your audience. That cost has gone down significantly because we can reach people online to do that. Maybe not on the phone because they're not picking up the phone, but they are subscribing to things, but they're do they're not doing so because I'm reaching out on the phone or sending them a direct email. They're doing things because they're finding really good content that they're saying, well, this is really good stuff and I want more of this. And they're subscribing to our stuff. You do that, it's that simple. You crack the code. That's all you need to do. And that's so what is what do I have to do? You you have to really focus on the needs of that audience base and cover it better than anyone else. And anyone can do that. Anyone, if you have the talent around it, you have the passion around it, you can do that. You can go out, like if you're a mid, uh, any size company and you want to go out and get the expert in a certain area, you know what? It's out there. You can have access to it. Go find the person. It's probably, they're probably having a blog on it right now. They, they're happy to work with you or you do it if you've got the expertise in that area and you can create the content and do all that stuff. So I think it's funny. It's such a laughable question about, oh, there's too much content. Always been too much content. Yeah. Well, one of it's the other pushbacks the is they'll say, well, we aren't a media company. We can't create great content that, that builds an audience. You know, we, we, we can't do that. It's, we know how to make widgets. What do, what do well, you say? Well, I'd say good. Don't. Then. <laughs> I'd say absolutely. Here's, who, here's, who are your competitors? <laughs> right. here's, the, here's the thing that's interesting. And this was part of the conversation I had yesterday with a fairly large consumer company. And we talked about what are you going to be selling in 10 years? And what we all realize is, is their core product, they're not going to be offering. It, it pr probably will be a very small product in 10 years. So I think we all focus as companies on what we sell. Like you said, that, that widget manufacturer creates great widgets. Well, how long is that going to happen? Look at the struggle that manufacturing companies are going through that you don't need those things anymore and, and consulting. So everything is changing. Those things all change. What doesn't change is your, your focus on delivering what the audience wants from an informational standpoint. The information changes, but the audience is there. And then you've got new opportunities to reach new audiences. So those things, that's where the what you're going to sell can always change and will always change. And if you look at the greatest companies of all time, most of their product sets have changed, a la, a la Apple. Really good example. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and their product audience, mix is completely different. Your so. audience will tell you what they want. I mean, that's, that's why content marketing world exists because we used to sell, as you know, matching product, like is the eHarmony for content marketing, which didn't sell because nobody needed it. And the only reason content marketing world exists is because we had an audience of about 30,000 marketers and they told us on a regular basis, they wanted ongoing education and training and they really wanted an event. And if there was an event, they would pay to go. We created an event and now it's the most profitable thing we do. Yeah, and there was a lot of that in the the Content Inc. book too. Great examples. Last one I want to mention though was the one of the pushbacks was, well, we can't tie content marketing to revenue. And you all said, well, the short answer is then don't. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> the, look, it. There's a couple different ways to if you have somebody that is an, a non-believer in your organization, and I really believe that you can go forward with a pilot. Do it very quietly. However you're measuring marketing right now, you can go in with content marketing or this model and measure it the same way. So how are you? And that's fine. Don't change the model for up. Don't change them. You change your model and show them whatever metrics you have to to, to build that audience outgoing. Uh, my favorite one is fear. I absolutely believe that's the best way to go because if you go forward and the CMO doesn't believe in this and you start going through and say, well, here's what our competitors are doing. You know what? Our competitors just bought this property. They bought that. They created this. Do you know that they reach 75% of our audience directly and they don't have to rent that audience at all? And really quickly, they'll see, oh my God, our model is broke because that's what's happening. So whether or not you can show revenue or not, it it's, it, that will come. The first thing is you have to build the asset. The asset is the audience and you can monetize that asset any way you choose to. 
It just may not be through the traditional product set that you currently have. That's where a lot of people are scared to do this. That's why small companies, you can go at this all day long because you have no preconceived notions over it. But right, right. the big and companies have to get on board anyways. Yeah, and the bigger the company, the more the marketing muscle memory that I like to talk about where they just they keep thinking, well, that's the way we've always done it, you know, like the bloodletting. And they the smaller ones, they are more nimble, they're more, you know, they have more of a sense of urgency, they have less inertia, and they're more inclined to want to take risks. Joe Polizzi, last question about the book. What if you're wrong about all this? Well, first of all, I'm not. So that's that answer. Okay. I, for the listener's benefit, that's the last section of the book is, what if we're wrong about all this? What, what if we are wrong? This is what I love. Yeah. Another thing I Here's, loved about yeah. the 10th so, chapter. So what if, what if you're wrong? If, what, if you're wrong, then if you take this path, you will be delivering amazing, valuable information to your customers on an ongoing basis. You will understand more about your customers than you ever did before doing anything else. So the worst case scenario is we learn more about our customers' needs and wants and we get closer to them and it provides us with all sorts of other opportunities. That's the worst. That's the worst case scenario that you can't show revenue. You've just created the most amazing relationships with your customers and you can do whatever you want to with that then. So I think that's, and I was relegated to, just go buy. If you don't believe in this, keep doing what you're doing. Just buy advertising. And you know what? Advertising is only working for two companies right now, for the most part. You know who those two companies are? Google and Facebook. (laughs) And good for them. And good for them. And they're doing a great job at it. It's not working. It's not working as well for the rest of us. I mean, right now, the standard of efficiency, and Robert talks about this in the podcast, the standard of efficiency is 70% and going down. We know that 30% is all bots and fake anyways. Yeah. So now you've got 70%. Sure, it's going to be 50%. Then it's going to be 30%. Then we'll be lucky to have 10%. Then it's gone. So. And you all cited a Google study that said 56% of maybe display ads aren't even being seen. Yep. Something yep. like that. So Yeah, oh. I mean, they're being seen by robots and bots, but they're not being seen. So that's why our metrics are all off too. We're looking at impression metrics. We're looking at viewability that's not right. I mean, there's this the, the advertising industry right now is... oh. It's that's a, the, my favorite advertising actually is print advertising <laughs> because I mean, if somebody opens that up and views it, it's not a robot, at least not yet. I can actually see the printed advertising. Right. I can see when somebody picks it up in the newsstand or picks it up at a distributor and those types of things. But still, I'd rather not do the advertising. I'd rather do the publication yeah. and build the audience. So, Joe, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, it's a totally... This is what I'm thinking actually right now, Douglas. I'm thinking that if you're with an organization that can't get their arms wrapped around this kind of idea, I would look at doing something else. Marketing, your career and you and the profession is too important that if you get around somebody that just wants to do things the way they've always been done, that's fine. Let them. And that's and a lot of companies aren't going to do this, and that's fine. It leaves more for the rest of us. Well, they're not going to do it but, now. Or maybe not do it. Yeah. They might, or maybe ever. There are there are companies like I, I talk about in the book, Exxon Mobil. Exxon Mobil could survive for a long, long time on just advertising and doesn't have to build any audiences like we're talking about in the book. Um, they're big enough. They've got so much cash. They'll be fine. Are they going to be a growth company again? No. But that's a different. That's that's what we're talking about. We're talking about. Do you want to be a leading, innovative company? Do you want to do some amazing things and create some amazing relationships? So I would say personally, as you read this book, I would say you know you need to make some decisions about where you want to go and the impact you want to make on other people. Um, and then hopefully this book will help you do that. Like that killing marketing was made for the senior executive. You can get them this book and they'll start to think differently about how they view communicating with their customers. Yeah. You know, that brings to mind Carlos Hidalgo's book, Driving Demand, where he talked about uh, the book was about demand generation, but a lot, a lot of it was about dealing with change. And he said that at one point he told a story about how he was given a talk once and someone in the audience talked about the kind of person you were just describing who feels like they're stuck at a company and they can't get management on board and they just don't get it. Doesn't mean management's bad people. They just didn't get it. She said, what should I do? And Carlos said, update your resume. 
<laughs> Love that advice. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Life yeah. is too life is too short. Yeah. Uh, because well, in some of these companies that we've dealt with, it it could take years, if not decades, for change to happen. I mean, you're the bigger the company, I mean you're moving the Titanic, right? You can't get out of the way of that iceberg. You're gonna hit it. You're smaller company, you're more nimble. You might want to go to a smaller company that's more uh, open to ideas like mm-hmm. this. And if I could just offer a little bit of inspiration to the listener, you know, people are saying, like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, people aren't learning these things in school or whatever. Well, Mark Schaefer, back to your your fellow member of the Three Timers Club, he he wrote a post recently about how there's no such thing as a marketing expert anymore. We're all marketing students. Yes. And you've just got to start learning and staying on top of things. I would suggest that they continue to listen to the Marketing Book Podcast, but there's just so much information out there for self-education that it's you, you really need to do that even if you feel comfortable at your uh, sales or marketing job. Joe, quick question. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to seeing come out? Well, you, you've heard about this on, a, on our podcast. I fell in love with Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Yes, and you talked about it in your book, too. Talk about it in the book. Absolutely would recommend it. Um, you know, He's interviewed so many people, and it's basically a page or two on each one of those interviews and the top things. So I, I, would, I would absolutely get that. I'm also looking forward to the Ready Player One movie, which I hope does not stink, uh, because Ready Player One, the, the book, is fantastic. So those are two, two oh, completely different things, but there you go. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Uh, so I'm at Joe Polizzi, P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I on Twitter, fairly accessible that way. JoePolizzi.com is where you can find all the information about me and where I'm speaking and all that stuff. And then KillingMarketing.com is is the book site. And then everything content marketing, ContentMarketingInstitute.com is uh, where we hang our hats. So uh, one of those hopefully will have an answer for you. Fantastic. The name of the book is Killing Marketing, How Innovative Businesses Are Turning Marketing Cost into Profit. The authors are Joe Polizzi and Robert Rose. Joe, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast again. Until next time, my friend. And that closes the book on episode 139 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on the show, I would love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Also, check out the B2B Growth Show. It's a great companion podcast to this one. And please join us next time as we welcome Ken Kupchik to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his hilarious new book, The Sales Survival Handbook, Cold Calls, Commissions, and Caffeine Addiction, The Real Truth About Life in Sales. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Robert, sometimes when I, uh, excuse me, Robert, Joe, you guys are, you know, it's like uh, having, we're you know, friends. it's like having yeah. uh, several kids and you can never get their names right. <laughs> I, as the youngest child, I, I had to listen to several other names before my mother could remember. Oh yeah, Douglas.